Welcome back to the Midfield Politics Podcast. My name is Luke James, and as always, I'm joined across the dispatch box by none other than Zach Green. If you're new around here, Midfield Politics is meant to be a weekly politics podcast where Zach and I break down the leading headlines from the US, Europe, and the UK. At the minute, we're both super busy, so it's kind of been more kind of fortnightly, free weekly type situation. But we're back with another episode. It's feeling decisively Christmassy right now in in where I live. My parents have hosted a Christmas light switch on on our street. I honestly, I'm not joking. It was it, it, the pandemic has, has has changed these people and it's changed. Uh, it, this, was, it, this... was it a government mandated uh, Christmas party? Well, potentially. <laughs> um, there were like seventy people there. Um, I'm told. I was I was watching f1 through my finger so i i honestly wasn't there but i did enjoy the leftover pigs in blankets so that was all good um but yeah it's the 5th of december zach i'm feeling a little bit christmasy or a christmas jumper yesterday it's getting a bit chilly we're back with another episode of the midfield politics podcast our gift to the nation or our kind of 20 or so listeners <laughs> we should probably get into this zach how are you doing yeah not too bad just carrying on with the christmasy vibe i'm literally in the living room right now We've got a lovely white Christmas tree to the right of me and to the left of me. We've got, I've not switched it on yet, but some monstrosity that's like a thin Christmas tree. So it's, it's, it's all a bit hectic over here. I know this isn't the point of the show, but when you say white Christmas tree, you mean the, the Christmas tree is actually white? Yes. Interesting. So I, 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 I prefer the traditional one, but this house is not a democracy. Yeah, so when I live with Olivia, listeners, Olivia's my, my girlfriend, we live together at university, and I've, when I live with Olivia, I brought the mini, like, two-foot Christmas tree that I used to have in my, my bedroom at home with us, Um, and I was like, yeah, we're going to decorate the flat at Christmas, it'll be great, blah, 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 anyway, I get the Christmas tree out at the start of December the first year we were, we were living there, and she just looks at it and goes, what the hell is this? And I was like, it's my Christmas tree. And she was outraged because it was a black Christmas tree and not a green Christmas tree. Um, so I think, yeah, different coloured Christmas trees are controversial. I haven't actually seen many white ones, but I digress. I just thought I'd share some Christmassy love. Um, Zach, it's been a while since we last spoke. Um, a lot has happened since we last spoke. And to be completely honest, Zach and I haven't planned what we're going to talk about, which has become a theme of late because as i say we've, we've both been really really busy with with university and, and life and and all sorts of different things so today like last week or rather the week before is going to be a bit of a firing from the hip type situation but before we get into the podcast at large of course i'm going to start with the same question that i always do because i have no imagination and structure is important to me zach what has caught your attention over the past seven plus seven days so what's caught my attention? Uh, I think it was a, a front page slash some it was some article that was uh, released today about Boris Johnson's crackdown, uh, no pun intended, on um, cocaine use uh, in the country. That if you're getting done for drugs offences, you're going to get an ID taken away from you. And of course, within minutes of that article being um, put up. Um, to the fact that traces of cocaine near this uh, had been part of it. So, um, yes, it, it kind of speaks to probably Boris Johnson being a bit desperate to look like the traditional tough on law and order and all of that and so forth in the Conservative Party when you're announcing a, a war on drugs. I didn't see this development coming in terms of Boris Johnson waging a war on drugs. Um, I don't know why I didn't see it coming. Perhaps it was, perhaps it was obvious and perhaps it was kind of the next thing on the kind of culture war playbook. And I mean, it's it, the way that this could play out, if I'm thinking strategically and I'm thinking away from policy and logic and morals on this, um, could be really handy for the Conservative Party because the Conservative Party could be, we are the party that is hard on drugs. Which probably is not how they would phrase that in an election manifesto. <laughs> but <laughs> well, what I mean, some, some might beg to differ with some of the policies they've come out with. 
Well, yeah, and obviously there's been talk about cabinet ministers in the past and and what they get up to in their spare time, but that's not really kind of what I was going for. What I just mean is that if the Conservatives go, we're going to be hard on drugs, and Labour say we're not going to be as hard on drugs, then that creates an angle where the Conservatives can say, yeah, we're serious people and people who are anti-drugs, whatever those drugs might be, that could be that could create an interesting kind of divide in the electorate that the Conservatives could could play off. Before I jump in with my kind of view on a potential war on drugs in the UK, what do you think of, of both the policy idea and of the debate around liberalisation or, or the opposite in terms of drug policy in the UK? It, it, it becomes quite murky territory, isn't it? Because we know that I think the, this story is about you know, the, the heavy-duty drug, shall we say, the, the cocaine to this world. And yet people will conflate that debate with the cannabis debate. I think at the moment you've got the cannabis oil that people can start using for medicinal use. It, it's some sort of thing there. And eventually, if it's not this at the next election, it'll be the one after where eventually the prevailing going to some form of drug some way. I mean, look at in Scotland, for example... I think they're opening centres where you can use, like, for example, heroin and all of that gang. It's, I think our attitude towards drugs over the past couple of years, perhaps accelerated by the pandemic, I don't know. It just seems to be become a, a big news story since the pandemic. Um, and I suppose that could be because of where we were all locked down for virtually a year. I think people's priorities have shifted in a way where, you know, some like to bit of an extra drink some of us were quite depressed in lockdown some of us did you know and all of that so yeah the, 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 the debate will be conflated with cannabis it will then be chucked out the window but at the same time i think this will become prehistoric that it ties in that time for a change kind of thing that we're going to go about things in a new way that could be the chink in there aren't they it could be the strength of the Labour party or even the liberal democrats to say i know we've been thinking about drugs in a very black and white way for a long time it's time to actually recast the thinking and you know go you know have it off with the status quo and bring in something else it, it'll be very interesting to think it's something for a very long time it won't have to be at the front page of every new every single day it'll be in my opinion. So those were the topics that caught our attention over the past couple of weeks, which brings us on to the main part of the show. As I said at the top of the episode, Zach and I are just going to see where the conversation takes us, essentially. And the thing that didn't exist two weeks ago, that very much exists now and is going to continue to dominate the headlines going forward, is the Omicron variant. Now, if you aren't aware of what the Omicron variant is, and I'd be shocked if you're listening to the show and you didn't, Um, A new variant has emerged of the coronavirus out of South Africa. That's where it was first identified. Um, Scientists are worried about it. They think it's more transmissible and get to see whether it's kind of more dangerous than other forms. But yeah, it definitely looks to be more transmissible. There are concerns about whether or not it is evading the vaccine. The kind of protein spike is heavily, heavily kind of mutated on previous versions, which is the part that is relevant to the vaccine, basically. Um, And... There has been all sorts of policy developments around the world, basically, in wake of this. So the UK has huge travel restrictions in place for for countries mainly in southern Africa. Um, Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, has has introduced new new restrictions and new rules about kind of shutting nightclubs, limiting the number of households that can meet together, all those kind of things. So a lot has changed in the last fortnight in terms of the pandemic. So that's where we'll start. Zach, your initial kind of thoughts, reactions to what we've seen over the last couple of weeks? I think I think we'll talk about the restrictions as well, that it's one of those ones where it's, it's better to be safe than sorry, and where we don't know too much about the Omicron variant enough yet, it's still quite a relatively nebulous topic, isn't it? That essentially the, the fact of the matter is it seems to be a more transmissible variant. Uh, we've not seen it translate into symptoms and deaths and, hospitali- uh, and hospitalizations 
as yet. But where we don't have enough information, it's still very concerning that I think the R rate, or I think it was Robert Pester actually tweeted the stat about it's 3.3 times more transmissible than the Delta variant, which is extremely concerning because another, you know, another point to make here is that we're still dealing with the Delta variant. As it stands, the Delta variant is still the most prevalent in the UK. It's still, we're still contracting quite a lot as opposed to other countries. So it's, it's still a very nebulous topic, I think. And where we don't know too much about it in terms of what we need to know, it does feel that our governments and experts are still speculating somewhat, which I think at times like this where I think that's a necessity because if we do not talk about it, if we do not explore it, there's that risk that we become ignorant to it as we probably were maybe as a country, maybe as a, as a globe back in January 2020, which does feel like an eternity ago. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't even know where to start with this. Zach, Zach and I talk all the time over DM about kind of, well, politics and football and university, basically. And when Omicron came up, I think and when it became obvious that it was going to become a big thing, and like there have been those moments during the pandemic where you realize, okay, now this is going to be a thing. Like when we was approaching into December last year, and it was fairly obvious that there was going to be another lockdown. It was like, ah, okay, this is getting serious again. Mm-hmm. Um, and the emergence of Omicron feels like that. It feels significant. It feels like something is going to happen as a result of it. And I think the first message I sent to you about it, Zach, was something along the lines of, ah we're going to have to do a coronavirus episode again. We're going to have to talk about the pandemic again. Um, and I really wanted it to, to for us to not have to do that ever again. And it felt like we were getting close, didn't it? Like, yeah. go back to, perhaps it, well, it was, I say perhaps it was naivety. Well, it was naivety on my part. But like, go back to September and things were starting to look a little bit better. Like, so many people are vaccinated in the UK and around the world of course there's an issue in terms of country to country allocations of vaccines but inside rich wealthy western countries there's been a high uptake that obviously doesn't speak about the scandalous way in which the west has behaved with regards to vaccines in and of itself but that's kind of i i think we'll get to that in this segment um and yeah i just said i feel like we're going back in time here um on a, b- before we get into some of the more politicsy bits of this, how are you? Where's your head at in terms of you, live, like going about your day to day life? What are you thinking about the pandemic at the minute? I think we're at that kind of. I think we're both on the record. You know, we're quite apathetic with it now that we're getting to the point where the variance doesn't really doesn't surprise me. There's a new variant, and it's not you know getting a tin hat on. It's just that's that science you know every virus does have a mutation it just seems to be with this variant again but we don't know too much about it it's as if we are putting our anticipation on hold because we don't really don't know what's going to be happening and um i think the, the big the big change has obviously been mandating masks again i think that's the only thing i've really changed my day-to-day thing of i do it because i don't want to get fined kind of thing you know i'll wear it on the train i'll wear it when i have to as opposed to a couple of weeks ago where it's it's kind of an attitude thing, isn't it? Where I remember the week before masks were brought back, absolutely no one was wearing them on the trains because people just, it's that idea of we're living with it, we're vaccinated, you know, life's going on. And then it's like a flick of a switch. Literally, I remember the, it was the Tuesday it came into force. Every single person on the train in my carriage had a mask on. It, it was remarkable in that way that, I think we have become, a, even if it's implicitly, we've become a lot more cautious about the pandemic. And I think that's natural because I think we were like this last this time last year when it looked inevitable that we were going to have lockdown. I remember cancelling a couple of Christmas parties just because you, it was that kind of, it's the risk factor, isn't it? This was, that was pre-vaccine times. It was now. Uh, I don't know. I, th- I don't know when we're going to be invited to have our booster jab, but I, I'm assuming, again, sooner rather than later we're going to be going towards that as well yeah um so we 
have slightly different views, I think, and slightly different attitudes and slightly different psyches on the pandemic. I, I think I'm I, I've been much more shook, I think, by it. Um like before before all of this existed, before I knew the word coronavirus existed, we're, we're talking pre-pandemic times. I was I never thought about getting sick. Like I don't have any pre-existing health conditions. Um, like in my early twenties, um, I didn't think a lot about holding on to the handrail on the tube, and then not washing my hands for a couple of hours until I like went to the toilet or had some food type thing. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't think about that. I wouldn't think about carrying hand sanitizer. I, I wasn't that guy at all. Um, and now, and this has been the case like the whole way through basically. <laughs> now I like won't go out with like before the pandemic like it would be the classic thing i tap my pockets and like check do i have my phone do i have my keys do i have my wallet now mm. it's like do i have my phone do i have my keys do i have my wallet do i have my face mask do i have my hand sanitizer um and like i i've been wearing my face mask on on the tube and in shops pretty much the whole way through on the tube in particular like sometimes if there's no one in the shop then i'm not gonna wear my face mask type thing or if there's no one on the tube carriage i wouldn't have worn it in that example but i've i've been pretty cautious with it and I think where my head's at at the minute, I I just really hope it doesn't get so much worse. You know, I just, I'm a bit sick of it. I'm not apathetic in the sense that I am cynical or anything like that. I, I'm like not apathetic in the sense that I'm just like, the rules need to stop type thing. Because I think they're probably necessary or some of them are probably necessary. Um, but I am bored. I'm scared and bored, um, <laughs> which I guess is a good thing. I think if I wasn't scared, then my boredom would be would be a bad thing, if that makes sense. Mm. But yeah, that's kind of where personally my head's at. And I think that's fine. I think it's fine that people have different... There's a window of rationality, isn't there? I almost said something a little bit silly. I think it's... I, I almost said, <laughs> I think it's fine that people have different views on the pandemic, which is true to an extent, don't get me wrong. Like, it's fine... To, to to be within a within parameters it's not fine to be posting covid conspiracy theories on bus stops and things oh. like that given that it's worrying that as the pandemic's got on a lot more of that's happened which for me yeah it, it's, and we... inc- it's incredible because these people are seeing what's happening in real time and yet want to commit themselves to this theory that it's not real or it's something huge microchip government conspiracy when let's be quite honest the governments that we do have in power <laughs> i don't think they're that clever no precisely and that's the thing there was a there was a tiktok that I saw the other day that was reposted on twitter where it was basically like okay so this like it was a chart showing the difference between a conspiracy in the sense that like watergate was a conspiracy like when there were multiple people who conspired to do something and a conspiracy theory and like you go up the triangle type thing so you have a conspiracy then you have basically slightly more far-fetched conspiracy and then you get to the top and it's like believing in the illuminati is running the world or bill gates is microchipping everyone and like you get up and like the further up the the more likely it is to be an anti-semitic thing or, or whatever it might be um and the point that i'm i'm that you've kind of pointing me in the direction of is in the uk and basically for the whole the whole of my life where i can remember knowing anything about politics or anything about the news or anything about the world basically um like the uk has always had a big conversation about terrorism and like how people are radicalized online um obviously in wake of 9-11 and 7-7 and this kind of stuff and that, that's always been a big thing on on in, in politics and in, in the public psyche. Um, and I don't really understand, well, I, shamefully, I do understand why this is, probably isn't the conversation. And I think the answer is racism. Um, but why isn't there a big conversation about how these people are being radicalised on the internet? COVID conspiracy theorists. Mm. I, I find that a little bit concerning because people are being radicalised, aren't they? Oh, essentially, and it, it, and the thing, and we've had this for about a year as well. This big discourse. This was pre-COVID as well. I think 
this discussion about regulation online that where do you draw the line do we have anonymity do we have this do we have that and it seems to just be going under the radar about this specific thing that you know i think someone i can't remember who it was it was it was one of those like american blue tick accounts on twitter that does all sorts and they decided to test facebook by putting out covid conspiracy theory didn't get flagged down and i think they said something else and it immediately did and it's like one of those views was a lot more dangerous than the other, yet, you know, the big tech giants, I don't think are doing enough in that respect. And it's, it is gravely concerning because I think that's the next frontier of, of radicalisation in general. And the, the, have you, I, I'm assuming you've seen the video of Piers Corbyn on the district bar. Yes, it was the worst. Is this the way to Amarillo cover ever, wasn't it? Yeah, and you have stuff like that, which in and of itself isn't sinister, because it is just so patently absurd and so just ridiculous. Like, just the, I had the, I'm slightly ashamed to admit this, but I had that song stuck in my head for quite a while. <laughs> but in because... a way, that's clever in terms of, it's... it look, doesn't look sinister at all, but the actual deep, in, deep inside it's ticking away at people. And that, yeah, and... that in itself is very clever. And the underlying tones behind the stuff that people on the on the extremes of the extremes are saying are seriously sinister. Mm. Like there's a plot, like to over overrule the world. Like who's behind this mysterious plot? Um, so yeah, that's something that I've been thinking about recently in terms of why is no one talking about people being radicalized in the age of the pandemic? Because I honestly think that that is going to be a big issue coming out of this. Um, I, I honestly, honestly do. Back to, I guess. Back to Blighty. Back to well, it's happening in Blighty, but back to <laughs> back to the policy of it. Um, and I should say as well, I'm not talking about people who disagree on policy. Like, I think it's completely fine if you own a pub to to have the view to say I I don't think they should bring about social distancing because it will hurt my business. That's reasonable. I'm talking about people who are out and out conspiracy theorists who think there's a plot to to over, take over the world through the pandemic. It doesn't make any sense, but yeah, I, I thought I'd clarify anyway. Um, in terms of policy ramifications of this, Zach, is Mr. Johnson going to cancel Christmas again? I think that's the question that everyone is looking for an answer for on this podcast. I think it would be a very extremely hard sell if he did. And it's the motivation behind it. What's the end game of cancelling Christmas? And I find it quite worrying. At the same time, you have to be sympathetic in that you do have to wait until you get the, the data sets and the trends and, and so forth to make a decision. But he's making the big announcement. I think it was in the Times that someone leaked it, that it will be literally a week before Christmas. Now, again, a lot of movement in the country is contingent on the next couple of days after the 18th of December. And I think if you, for example, this exactly happened last year, people still, in I think, people still went away anyway. It's that kind of, how do you sell this to the public that, yes, you've put up with so much for the last 18 months, you're going to have to do it again. And with all the stories that come out about the, the Downing Street Christmas event, uh, if you listen to Question Time, or if you listen to those who were there, the Downing Street Party, at a time when Christmas was, in inverted commas, cancelled. It's, again, this is hard sell of, is it just one rule for us and one rule for the government, or is there some sort of flaky in between? It's It'll be fascinating to see what the decision is. I, I personally don't think he'll cancel Christmas. I think it, it will look bad on him. And we know that Boris Johnson is a prime minister that loves to be loved. And the sympathy and goodwill this time for anything he does with the coronavirus, I think it's gone. And any decision such as cancelling Christmas will surely look very bad on him, which at the moment in his current political state, I don't think he can afford. To be honest, I was I was being facetious when I asked, is Boris Johnson going to cancel Christmas? I I don't think so. I think even it, and we saw this last year. And you say you say it's like all the time. He's the Heineken Tory. He loves to be loved. Boris Johnson, when coronavirus, the pandemic was so so bad, heading into December last year, he was desperate not to put any new measures in before Christmas, and obviously he had to in the end. 
Mm. Um, and and that was like he just had to do it, didn't he? Like he waited so so long. It was so inevitable that it was going to happen, and he held off to the very very last moment because he didn't want to do the thing that he knew would be hellishly unpopular. Um, I so yeah, no, I don't it, think it's, it's gonna... bad. It's a bad way of governing, isn't it? But, oh, it's a terrible. It's, it's and terrible we, sound very, we sound very cynical by saying it, but it's true, isn't it? That that's how I think a lot of policy in this country, with this government in particular, is done. And it's obviously we're a very poorer country politically, economically, socially, whatever you want to say, because of it. For sure, I was I was talking about this. This is another tangent. Uh, this has been a very tangenty show, but I, people tend to like it when we go from tangent. We, might, ha- we might have to put that as part of the title this time. Something tangenty. Episode fifty something. Lots of tangents featuring Luke and Zach. Um. Anyway, I was speaking to the news was on the other day, and I was downstairs with my parents. I was watching the news. Um. And my mum flippantly kind of said i can't remember what the story was on at the time but it, it was about boris johnson essentially it might have been pepper pig world actually oh god that happened since the last podcast <laughs> yes oh. the cbi speech oh so much has happened yeah, we, so, oh so my god we haven't been on air for a for a long time there's been good there's been some seriously good content and the other thing as well zach and again we're going off on another tangent right in the middle of the show but people, going on a tangent on a tangent for a tangent We are through the looking glass at at this point in time. But I have not seen any part of the Nigel Farage Donald Trump interview. Me neither. He's gone down as a damp squid. I haven't haven't seen any clips. And Zach and I, when we heard out this was going to be a thing, I I was like, oh, yeah, I'll clip it up. We'll we'll do a whole podcast on it like we did kind of with with the presidential um, debates. And (laughs) I've not seen anything. Um, Anyway, that's a tangent in a tangent in a tangent. Let's get back to my first tangent. What I wanted to say, watching the news of my parents, my parents, as I've mentioned previously, are conservative voters. We live in a conservative constituency and they vote conservative. Um, I wouldn't say they're particularly interested in politics. I think they're very typical, normal people in terms of their level of interest in politics. My dad runs a small business, a small to medium sized business. So his interest in that kind of stuff. My mum, obviously through that, has an interest, but isn't they're not going to political rallies, for example. They've not got political bumper stickers, all this kind of stuff. I, what I'm saying is they're probably like the median conservative voter. And we're talking about the news. The news was on. And my mum just turned around and said, what is he actually good at? This he being the Prime Minister Boris Johnson. And <laughs> I just turned around and I said, he's, he's good at campaigning. But he's not good at governing, is he? No. And I think that's... That's the thing. That's that's that older days, isn't it? That governments uh, campaigning poetry and governing prose, and Boris Johnson kind of rips up the rule book for that. And in a way, it's always been his USP, hasn't it? That you know he's not your typical politician. And I I, I hate this from Laura Coonsberg. It's a very lazy thing to say that voters, in a way, are cashed, are priced in with that. That they expect it. There's an element of that. But at the same time, in big decisions that involve our economic lives and, frankly, our public health, you can't have someone like Boris Johnson in power because, it again, it just dilutes the quality of our politics and reduces a lot of decisions to very remedial things that even, you know, the bog standard voter thinks this is actually quite bad. And that is a feature of our democracy, isn't it? That's the fascinating thing. So Dominic Cummings has said repeatedly that it's a damning indictment on British democracy that at the last election, and this is his view, not necessarily my view, but it's the view of a lot of people, I think, that that when you talk about the 2019 general election, is Dominic Cummings' view is basically, it speaks really badly of of UK politics, that the choice that the British people had was Corbyn or Johnson, because in many people's view, Corbyn not fit to be prime minister, Johnson not fit to be prime minister. Um, and I think that speaks to the heart of it. Like we have a political culture in the UK where people who are good at policy aren't typically as good at politics. And it's always the people that are good at politics or are thought to be good at politics that rise to the top and get these positions. Like, for example, um, Theresa May tended to be a relatively effective minister. Like, there are many, many things that Theresa May did 
obviously there are tons of things that Theresa May did, Windrush included, obviously, that I wholeheartedly disagree with. But in terms of the policy briefs that she had, she carried them out, didn't she, when she was a minister? She had a, she had like that kind of, and it's such an indictment about politics that, in a way, we kind of yearn for at least the professional and dutiful nature of Theresa May. That she's at least, however bad her politics or policies may have been, she was at least above her brief on things that, you know, you could very rarely catch Theresa May very cold. You might catch her trying to avoid the question, which is understandable as a politician. But in terms of, she's always been someone that that kind of gets the policies that are in in the news cycle, as opposed to Boris Johnson. For sure. And it's it's a competence thing, isn't it? Like, Boris Johnson is not competent, is the bottom line. Mm. And I think that's what makes, bringing it back to Omicron, that's what makes Omicron so, well, it's so serious anyway, but so even more serious than it might be in another country where there are competent policymakers at the top of government. Because at what point will the Prime Minister act? and take substantive measures if they're necessary. And of course, we're still talking at a point in time where I'm crossing all my fingers and all my toes that substantial measures aren't necessary. I would love nothing more than if we get a month into the future and the global scientific community finds out that Omicron is not that dangerous. That would be the best news ever, wouldn't it? Mm. But in, in the eventuality where that isn't the case, and we get bad news, what steps will the Prime Minister take? Because the Prime Minister has kind of penned himself into the corner now where he's like, any restrictions are going to be uh, bad. And because the politics that he's chosen has made policy very difficult. Absolutely. And I think that's a real, real big, big, big problem. Um, would you like to move on to something else? I, th- I feel like we've there's not too much to say on Omicron, is there? There's lots no. to say on Omicron, but there's not like there's nothing definitive that we can say. I think exactly. we've said, I'm a bit scared about it. You're a bit bored about it. <laughs> well, I'm also bored about it as well. A bit apathetic. When will policymakers pull the trigger? Mm. Is it worth talking about Labour briefly in terms of in terms of the coronavirus? Obviously, they were bigger. Obviously, there was a vote in Parliament the other day about bringing masks back on public transport and and in shops. Do you think Labour positioned themselves correctly? I think they've, especially with the pandemic, they've definitely, it's, it's as if they're looking at opinion polls and seeing that the public are still relatively, again, we've, we've said this over direct message that, you know, in a very clean terms, who actually are they asking? Because some of the polling that advocates for much more draconian measures, but the bottom line is that if you look at polling, uh, people in this country seem to be a lot more cautious and a lot more forgiving of restrictions of some sort to def- uh, defeat the virus. And what you're seeing with the Labour Party is that they take a similar stance that, for example, with masks, they're, they're going for it has to be everywhere. It can't just be in shops and public transport, which is an understandable position. And in a way, it's a much more coherent position, isn't it? Because it's we're getting back to that debate of, well, where can the virus go? You know, can the virus go to a pub after 10 o'clock at night? You know, that was the, the debate of last year. This year, it's where, where can it go apart from public shops? And they seem to be just taking a lot more of a hard line on that. I think in general, I think they secure a U-turn, didn't they, from the government this weekend about testing before going on holiday? So it's things like that. I think they seem to be a lot more... With COVID restrictions and policy, yeah, that that's the thing, isn't it? Like Labour are, are, are just presumably going to go further and faster than whatever the Conservatives suggest to differentiate themselves from the Conservatives. So I think that's an interesting wrinkle to put into the equation about where policy might be headed in the future in the UK, because the politi- uh, this is the thing: politics and policy making is impossible in the pandemic isn't it? Because mm-hmm. you get these really weird situations where parties are taking positions further to one side than the other on issues where they wouldn't normally. Absolutely. And that's that's what makes this so difficult politically. That's what makes politics so silly right now. But some of the debates that we're having are, are really silly and some of the positions that people are taking don't really make much sense when you put them in the broader framework of their politics. But 
I guess that's 2021, 2022. I guess that's where we are in the world right now. Um, I think we should move on, Zach. I think, I think we need to talk talk about Peppa Pig. Oh, of course. So everyone will will have seen this by now, but Prime Minister has a speech at the Confederation of British Industry a couple of weeks ago, and drops maybe the worst speech I've ever seen. Definitely. From a, it's from a Boris senior... Johnson's top three. Yeah. It's... Um, have you watched the whole thing? I did. I, I was the nerd who watched Johnson and Starmer's CBI speech. I, I, the caveat was I was on the train and I was very bored. I'll put that out there. <laughs> yeah, so I... I uh, cards on the table. Very rarely will I watch a political speech the whole way through unless it's something really big, like a big presidential election speech. Like, very rarely will I be tuning into a full speech or lots of PMQs. Like, I'll see the highlights, I'll watch the bits that I'm interested in, and then I'll turn it off. But I was working on a project for university, um, a video project, so I was, I was watching the CBI speech, and it was honestly astounding. And this is the thing that you spoke about earlier, Zach, with Laura Kunzberg, where her theory goes that the British public have kind of come to it it's kind of baked in with the british electorate that boris johnson does these these nonsensical things and we oh it's boris ha 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 we'll get on with it type situation um and i think we saw at the cbi speech that that isn't true because people looked at that and we're just like what on earth is going on here like honestly boris johnson is i know the queen is the head of state i get that whatever, if we're going to get technical about it. But Boris Johnson is politically the face of the country. And he's out here at a friendly organisation, it has to be said. Like, it's the CBI. It's it's a friendly, captive audience. And he's out here making car noises and losing his place for, like, the best part of a minute. It's absurd. And there was a story, I think it was in, it was either in the Times or the Telegraph, about, or perhaps the Mail actually as well, about kind of the different approaches that they had on the day. So Boris Johnson literally turned up five minutes before his speech and and read out some notes. Keir Starmer turned out turned up several hours early and practiced three times his full speech. And to to point to kind of paint the contrast between the two, <sighs> I, I've been speaking for a while, Zach. First of all, what was your initial reaction? You say you watched it live. What was your initial reaction? Second of all, should we be worried about this? Like, or is this is this just the norm? And perhaps maybe that's worrying in and of itself. But kind of, first of all, gut reaction, and then your kind of deeper analysis of of, of Peppa Pig. Well, we're taking out the swear word. It, it was sheer disbelief that it was one of those things where I can't believe what I'm watching. And I was thinking, I was looking at my um, Twitter time, I'm thinking, people are reacting the same way I am, that what is going on? What is he doing? And originally I thought he must be really unwell. He's he's going to have to just like finish the speech early and it will be spun out that, oh, Boris has really you know, had a bit of a funny turn and people would just shrug it off. But it was the fact that he was soldiering on with this, like again, it's this, 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 this Johnsonian bombast, isn't it? That kind of, he can talk his way out of anything, you know. The, the normal rules don't apply, but yeah, it went down like a massive cup of cold sick. And if you hear the laughter, it's kind of it feels forced laughter because it's so awkward that you're watching it, thinking this is the prime minister of this country, and he's giving a speech to, like you said, a very they're very soft as the Tories because the Tories are very good with business, have very good relationship with business, and yet even the soft part, you know, your soft audience were thinking. This is an absolute joke, and not it, it's not a funny one. It's actually, I think this is the the Labour attack line, which I do think is cutting through somewhat about the joke isn't funny anymore, and it's this idea that Boris Johnson, yes, you know he's a funny man, yes he's you know been up at the zip wire, but there comes a point where you have to put that aside and think, this is the man in charge of you know, as it's always rattled out in presidential elections, of the nuclear codes. This is the man that's actually going to be presiding over the economy, you know, housing, etc., etc. If the best thing he can come up with is 
asking people about Peppa Pig World and making, you know, brum brum noises, we're in a very bad place politically as a country. Uh, so, yeah, my gut reaction was sheer disbelief. And going forward, it's a worry that this is the norm. This isn't exactly a very out-of-character Boris Johnson performance. It, it, it really it just seems to be one of those ones that gets highlighted. You know, most Prime Minister's questions, he comes out with blatant lie, or he just starts saying, well, if it was up to Labour, we'd be in lockdown and Brexit wouldn't be done. It, he's like a broken record. And again, where the joke's not funny anymore, the same tune of the music that this broken record's playing isn't actually making any noise anymore. It just seems to be quite repetitive, quite broken, quite tired. And there's a lot of anxiety in the Tory party about that. Yeah. I... I'm not surprised. I'm disappointed. Is, <laughs> the, classic, is that a... the, the classic Tony Blair thing. I'm very disappointed in you. Yeah, I just... It's not... That's the thing. It's not funny anymore, is it? And and then you had... I can't remember which Conservative... M- it was either a, a Conservative MP or a Conservative advisor went on a, on a BBC talk show soon after the speech. And really was trying to G up Boris Johnson for talking about how Peppa Pig is a big British success success story. Fine. You know what? The Peppa Pig section isn't actually the headline here. At least it shouldn't be. Because you know what? And of, of course, and it goes without saying, the stuff that Boris Johnson was saying about civil servants couldn't be able to dream up dear Peppa. Or whatever he said, um, <laughs> it's just absurd, isn't it? Like, Completely. we we need to stop pretending that the creators of of Peppa Pig are uh, gonna like solve world hunger like it's a kids' cartoon show. And there's obviously, ta- I'm not I'm not disparaging Peppa Pig. That's not my intention. But the point is, like, what Boris Johnson said about Peppa Pig was a little bit silly. And at the same time, it's completely fine to say, look, Britain has an amazing creative industry, and Boris Johnson could say that slightly more credibly if he wasn't part of the party that released a, a poster saying that a dancer might get her next job insider. <laughs> this is the thing, isn't it? You can't completely undermine the arts and you can't talk about how people who study the arts at university are complete waste of spaces and then turn around and say, look at Peppa Pig, isn't she fantastic? Like the two positions, first of all, that, that that's, that's an important point to make. First of all, that is nonsense in terms of the way that the, the whole arts thing is discussed. Secondly, let's get rid of Peppa Pig from this, and let's get rid of. We don't say that often, do we? I d- yeah, it's taken us fifty plus episodes to mention Peppa Pig, so that is some kind of achievement. And let's get rid of the the I'm I used to be a motoring correspondent from room <laughs> section of the speech as well. The bit where he just completely lost his lines that astounded me, honestly. I d- that that did that did shock me a little bit. I wasn't surprised about the buffoonery of the other bits, but the prime minister, someone who is incredibly well educated in the sense that he's been to world class institutions his whole life, someone who has lived in the public eye for a very very long time, someone who was a journalist, and journalists have to be able to, they have to have the gift of the gap, don't they? Essentially, mm. to a certain extent. And yet he's the Prime Minister. He has so many people working for him and he couldn't get a relatively simple speech right. Is quite something. And again, it, 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 final word on this from me, it's just completely incompetent. And it's not a surprise. Like, this isn't news. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be sad if, if people had skipped this because you've heard everyone say about Boris Johnson these things before. But I think it's just worth stressing again. The Prime Minister is completely incompetent. And yet it's totally normal in British politics. Yeah, he has a commanding or commanding-ish lead in the polls. It's it is that kind of the law of gravity should be applying, yet it isn't. And this is a bit of a tangent as well. There was a, an interview in the time for Keir Starmer. And you know, he was asked and he actually, to his credit, did give quite a brutally honest answer about why are Labour not leading in the polls or when are they going to start leading? He said, Well we'll lead it a year when it turns out that you know, beneath the blasts and the prom- even the promises, even like the grandiose, you know, levelling up, for example, when they ring hollow, 
and you know all Boris Johnson has to say is like kind of what me of and then oh look you know here's the shiny shiny look at the shiny shiny when people don't fall for that anymore I think whatever state they were in they're going to pull ahead just simply because it will become a competence issue that and it will run down some very simple banal stories about well this hospital isn't clean for example that will probably be in the news next year when once politics becomes a bit more normal again and then all of a sudden it will go to a competence thing of well, Boris Johnson, you know, can't even have a, have a clean hospital or his new hospitals are now, you know, with a lick of paint on that's apparently one of the 50 new hospitals. It's this kind of thing where he's defying gravity. But again, what must go up must come down. And I think it's coming. I think it's coming at breakneck speed. I think the past couple of months of the prime minister have been very, very brutal. Yeah, for sure. That that's good. That yeah, it's going to be a really big year, twenty twenty two, especially because there's local elections as well. Mm. It's going to be huge. It's going to be really really fascinating to see. We've not even spoken about the by election that's happening next week as well. Obviously, there was by election this week, which was a foregone conclusion. But the Lib Dems are making a bit of a charge. Yes, uh, that that's the worry. It was the significance of the Bexley by-election that's just gone. That what the like you know Tory land, you know Bexley and Sidcup isn't exactly a a rapid Marxist community that they're going to be voting Conservative quite often. I think it's always been Conservative since the constituency was propped up in eighty three, but they were hemorrhaging a lot of votes. It must be said Labour didn't exactly. I know people said there was a. 10 or percent swing to Labour, that's because the Conservative vote completely hemorrhaged. There's this idea that votes are going away from the Conservatives to the Reform Party, to a lot of other candidates. The incumbency factor is not going to be there in North Shropshire. It's going to, you know, the, the narrative is going to be about sleaze rather than the very tragic narrative about what happened in Bexley and Sidcup. It's two completely different by elections, but the narrative prevails in both of it. Is it the midterm blues? Is it the start of Labour huge revival, or is it the start of the Lib Dem resurgence? And it seems we'll be tying into one about the election next week. I think it'll be a really fascinating result. I think it'll be close. I think the Conservatives probably will hold it, but again, if a seat like North Shropshire becomes marginal, then there are serious problems with the Conservative Party. For sure, I think that I think that sums up talk on Tories for today because. It's getting late and I need to edit the show and we wouldn't want any mistakes to creep into my editing this time out. Zach, I think now is the time to talk about Sakia Starmer and the Labour Party. Starmerama. Yeah. Starmerama. Drama with no, Mr. No. Starmer. Yeah. Um <laughs> he's, he's been riding a bit of a wave, isn't he? You know, Labour are Lead, I mean, they're at least leading in polls every now and then. It's something that hasn't been a, a characteristic of his leadership, hasn't it? Yeah. The thing that I wanted to ask you, because I'm completely unashamed to admit that you will know more about this topic than I do, or have actual opinions on this more so than I do, is the um, shadow cabinet reshuffle. Oh, yes. It was a, it was a, was it a professional one, despite the Raccoonsburg's best attempts to cast it as the same old labour of chaos. It it's a huge change farmer uh, that it's he's gone for the ones that cut through kind of the big hitters of the Labour Party rather than the very quiet, very very competent yet very quiet. So for, for example the Kate Greens of the Labour Party who are you know they've never done anything so bad yet again an average person's not going to know who Kate Green is and considering she was the shadow education secretary that's quite a big thing right so you know I think it's so good that Yvette Cooper's in the shadow cabinet I think that's a huge plus to the Labour Party she's going to be taking on Pretty Patel I think Wes Streeting one of their biggest stars uh, being in health is a big thing I think it's health um well, forgive me, forgive me. <laughs> um, but yeah, so really the Labour reshuffle, it's this idea that competence, of course, is still prevailing, yet it's the people that came through. Labour are going to go on the attack. 
it seems to be quite a revitalised mood around the Labour Party. And I know, obviously, they're not 20 points ahead or anything like that. Yet you can see, you begin to see it becoming a bit of a serious opposition party at last. And it's something we've always complained about, Keir Starmer's leadership, that, yes, you're competent, yet, but are you serious about winning power? Are you actually serious about becoming an opposition at least? And I think now he's starting to adopt that tactic. For sure. Um, what I'll do is I will quickly run through how the shadow cabinet is now looking. And then once I've done that, I'll feed back to you and then we'll we'll move on to something else, essentially. So, of course, at the top of the tree, Sakia Starmer, leader of the opposition. Angela Rayner, of course, we'll talk about her a little bit more in a second, I suspect, is the deputy leader of the party. Annalise Dodds is the Shadow Secretary of State for Women and Equalities. Um, just moving through the list, Rachel Reeves is, of course, Shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer. David Lammy got a promotion. He's now Secretary of State for Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Affairs. Yvette Cooper is back. She's now Secretary of State for the Home Department. Uh, Bridget Philipson is Secretary of State for Education. Lisa Nayandi has been moved and some including myself, would say demoted to Shadow Secretary of State for levelling up housing communities and local government. Nick Thomas Simmons is now Shadow Secretary of State for International Trade. Um, I'll keep going for a little bit quicker. John Healy is still with Defence. Jonathan Ashworth is at the uh, Department of Work and Pensions. I think I've gone through most of the main ones, but obviously... Ed Miliband is now Shadow Secretary of State for Climate Change and Net Zero. Steve Reid is the Secretary of State for Justice. Is there anything that's that's made... Uh, West Streeting as well is, is now Secretary of State for... Or Shadow Secretary of State for Health and Social Care. What really jumps out to you in all of this? In terms of, is, is there one main thing? My takeaway, for example, is Lisa Nandy being moved. I, I, I'd say um, Yvette Cooper, but I think you touched on a really good point about Lisa and Andy. I think you flip it around the other way about the demotion. It's a very smart thing to put someone in that traditional labour work, you know, working class seat from Wigan against Michael Gove about levelling up. I think it's a really shrewd move because I think Labour will have a lot more political capital in that front with Lisa and Andy. It's not exactly, Michael Gove's not exactly, you know, someone who directly appeals to voters up in the north, I don't think. But it's that idea that you're starting to put someone, not only is a big hit from the Labour Party anyway, but someone who can speak truth to the, the brief that they're in. And as competent as Lisa Nandy was as Shadow Foreign Secretary, I think she wasn't. Her talents weren't exactly being used properly in the Labour Party. I think this role, it might look like a demotion, but in a way, I think it's it's pushing up the infrastructure of Labour's next manifesto. I think that you've got someone that's going to be well above her brief that will definitely take Michael Gove on uh, in that role. So you don't think it's a demotion? I think it's one of those ones where, you, of course, you'd rather be Shadow, shadow Foreign Secretary than Shadow... Minister for levelling up, but at the same time, I think you could make a lot more political capital that role for her and for the Labour Party. It, it's it's a weird one. It's it's a demotion, but not a demotion. If you get what I mean. No, that's interesting, and that does make sense. And it's an awkward one, isn't it? Because I'm saying, like, my view is that it is a demotion, but I'm saying this full of self awareness and the fact that it makes it sound as though I'm thinking that leveling up parts of the country that haven't been first of all i hate i hate i hate i hate the the phrase leveling up and i i don't actually like that labor are using the term leveling up like why does why does the labor party and this is the thing that labor does in particular like above the other opposition parties as well why do labor always accept language used by the tories and adopt it and co-opt it like why do they let the conservative party mm. mold the political um kind of vocabulary of the country it, it just i don't like that but that that's a really super nerdy point that we should probably skate over and again i'm, I'm self-aware enough to recognize that leveling up again i've used the 
bloody term is important. Like obviously it's important, as you say, it's it, it's it's valuable and relevant to have Lisa Nandy, who is from Wigan or is rather MP for Wigan, to 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 be in that role. It does make sense, but I just think like she seemed to be doing well. I don't really understand why they had to move her. Yeah, it's. I think it's again. It depends on what you in the Labour Party. I think the Shadow Foreign Secretary is one of those really weird, enigmatic roles in in a cabinet. I think when you're not the Foreign Secretary, it's very hard. I think to cut through. To be quite honest with you, unless there's a huge, massive event uh, in diplomatic terms where the Shadow Foreign Secretary kind of input is going to be really important. It's one of those where. It, again, it's nice to have. It's you know obviously nice to jet around the world and all that kind of stuff, all that jazz. But at the same time, I think when it, it, it's the kind of the curse of the opposition, isn't it? It's half the roles in that cabinet aren't as prominent as I think we would like to think they are. For sure. Um, I guess the the only thing to add on on Lisa Nandy in particular is maybe, maybe I'm. Maybe I'm not being analytical enough because I'm I'm sitting here thinking about this. Did she do a great job in terms of her messaging and in terms of like getting the message out about what Labour fought during the Afghanistan withdrawal, for example? Because looking back, I know we had several months withdrawn now. Like, did she did she do a great job there? Did she do enough to keep the position? I don't know. I, I can't it's say that I spent a lot of time. It's how you judge the success, isn't it? You know, what would be success in any shadow role? I think the, 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 the chief success, I think, if you're an opposition minister, is that you have to cut through, you have to at least grab some headlines, you have to at least bolster the party's reputation on that brief. And to that point, I never really saw Lisa Nandy's views in Afghanistan as much as you'd like to hear, especially from the opposition. It was one of those issues, it's a very complicated issue, it's historically been a very complicated issue, so you can have a bit of sympathy for her there, but in terms of all foreign affairs, I, we didn't really see much of Lisa Nandy as much as you'd think, so it's a tough one. That, that's how I judge success, I think, at least for an opposition minister, is can you cut through and can you give your opposite number a really hard time, and I don't think she did as much as we wanted her to yeah I, I yeah maybe that's fair i don't know it's just the one that's is as i say it's just the one move that really really caught caught my attention as as i might say at the start of our what is meant to be weekly podcast act um i think we're approaching the end here is there anything you would like to talk about briefly or would you like to move to the end of the show and talk about something that that is going to be on your mind going forward I think we've covered. We, we we've done a really roundabout way of doing, it, but I think yeah, I think we've covered most things. I think we can naturally move on to the end, which is another sentence we don't say that often. In that frame of mind, Zach Green, what are you looking out for over the next seven days? I think it's going to be like a bit of a cop out here, but. I think more news on the Omicron variant. I think so far we've established about the transmissibility point. It's going to be so fascinating about um, the effect on vaccinations and immunity in that sense. I think that's going to drive the big headline decision on the 18th of December of whether or not Christmas is going to get cancelled. I think that's the, the main headline thing to look out for in particular. Yeah, you're you're right, I think basically, is the, is the bottom bottom line of that. I, I, I mean, the other thing that, I open the show with it, so I'll end the show with it, the, the case in the Supreme Court in the US is is really important, and that's that's going to be interesting to see how, how it unfolds going going forward, so that's one to, to keep an eye on. I'm trying to think of non-coronavirus stories, because people are sick to the back teeth of coronavirus stories, <laughs> I think, myself included. It's obviously important, that's why we're speaking about it. Um, but yeah, yeah, is, is there anything else that I'm thinking about at the minute? I mean, I think broadly, and again, I've done a terrible job of coming up with something that isn't related to the coronavirus because it is related to the coronavirus and it is about the coronavirus, but it's about internationally, is 
how are the restrictions going to look on a worldwide basis? Like, how far are some countries going to go? Because was it Israel a couple of days ago shut the borders to international travel completely, for example? Mm. Um, and obviously the UK isn't doing that. And obviously the messaging out of South Africa in, in particular and kind of other parts of the region as well, as well, the message has been, well, what's happening in terms of travel restrictions has been really unfair because the only reason that we know about Omicron, the only reason that we found out so soon is because South Africa's uh, genomic sequencing, I think that's the correct term, is really good. Like they're, they're really advanced and they're doing lots of it to keep on top of on top of the situation, like to an extent not seen in lots and lots and lots of other parts of the world. So South Africa should be credited for this and they shouldn't be punished for this, for, for, for finding out that something was wrong, essentially. Um, and you have that whole debate. Uh, actually, I'll end on this because I was going to mention it earlier, but I didn't. Like, heading into 2022, we, as a planet, need to think long and hard about how we're distributing the vaccine. Like, it needs to be easy to access for countries that are finding it difficult to access. That's the bottom line for me. I think that's that's where I'll I'll end the politics for today. Before we go, Zach and I have an announcement to make. Drum roll, drum roll, drum roll. No, <laughs> um, we're going to do a Christmas special, which we need your help with. So, if you've got to this point in the show, please send in absolutely any questions that you have for us and on a special episode of the podcast released on christmas day we will answer them it'll be fun it will probably not be very politicsy there'll be politics in it but we'll just have a chat basically to give you something to listen to on christmas day if christmas is a bit crap for you basically that was the idea i thought that would be nice anyway so christmas special of the midfield politics podcast coming out relatively soon in fact in 20 days at the time of recording. So that's exciting. Anyway, Zach, where can the people find you on Twitter? They can find me on at ZG1999 with an underscore. And you can find me at LukeJames underscore 32. And you can also find our kind of brand account at Midfield Politic. As always, we have now reached the end of the show and I will leave you with this. Stay safe and keep voting.